Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. I am Michael Gordon Bennett, and I am joined as always by the man from Barbados, Dave Cumberbatch. Uh, Dave, we really have a great show for our listeners today. It's the first podcast that we've produced where we get to actually talk about music. It falls right in line at this time because jazz has a rich history. Some folks say that it was started in 1895. You hear 1917. Uh, so in this episode, we aim to explore this rich history, this rich culture. I'm looking forward to speaking to our guests. Oh, tr- trust me when I tell you that Anita Dixon knows everything about jazz. She knows every damn thing about jazz. <laughs> but um, before we jump into the show, um, as I like to start off every show, we have a few housekeeping notes. Um, you could go to our website tripcast360.com where we have every show posted as well as on all the appropriate outlets like Apple and iTunes and podcasts and Google podcasts and iHeartRadio and Spotify. And by the way, uh, for those of you who don't know, Amazon's about to launch their own podcast network. Uh, I don't know when it's going to go live, but we've already signed up to be on Amazon as well. Yeah. So we're excited about that. Also, uh, just this week, we actually have our newsletter sign-up form on our website. So if you go to our website and wait about two seconds for the pause to end, a big old nice form will pop up telling you to subscribe to our newsletter. And why is that important? We are not only going to have all of our show synopses on there, but we're going to have travel deals, merchandise deals, and things of that nature, something that can save you a little bit of money or something that may generate some form of excitement for you to participate in. And you will only get that information on our newsletter. So we encourage everybody to sign up. And you can also follow us on all of our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you have some exciting travel stories that uh, you are just dying to share with the rest of the world, you can send those to us via email at contact at tripcast360.com. And some lucky people will actually get to appear on our episode like today's guest. And speaking of today's guest, I want to dive right in. One of the world's foremost historians on the art form we know as jazz, especially as it pertains to the swing era, swing era, excuse me, that emanated from her native Kansas City, Missouri. She is the founder of Sage Consultants and is the driving force behind culture and arts with UNESCO and Kansas City's link to the Creative Cities Network. Anita Dixon is in the oh, house. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So good to see you, darling. It really is. Man, it's been a long time. I, hey. Gosh. Uh, I, I'm trying to guess. I guess it's been. You haven't been here in at least six years. At least that. Yeah, it's actually been longer than that because I know yeah. my mom moved in with me six years ago and I stopped traveling when she moved in. So, right. yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. So, how's Kansas City treating you? Uh, yeah, about the same. <laughs> Across <laughs> our own country. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll say, say hi to the quiet one known as Dave. Hello, Dave. <laughs> uh, a lot of times, Dave and I start off our shows talking about the weather. Uh, I, I actually woke up in Las Vegas this morning and and it was a cool 73 degrees. It'll be 100 in about an hour, but it was 73. And I'm like, wow, that's a, a welcome relief because it's been 6 a.m. It's been 90. Yeah, we had high heat warnings all last week. So we have a cooling trend now. It's 102. That reminds me the first time I, I went to London. They tell me if I want to have a, a good discussion with an Englishman, let's talk about the weather. So if I want to have a good discussion about temperatures at this time of the year that are 
that exceed 100 degrees in Vegas, then I need then I need to talk about Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what it is. I've been quarantined in my house, and I don't know what it looks like outside. I don't know what it feels like. It is a constant 72 in here, so I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I'm afraid to put mine on 72 because my electric bill will be $1,000 if I did that. I mean, it's it's brutal. I actually ride a bike now. I started doing that for okay. exercise because I don't want to go into a gym. I have to ride my bike at 6 a.m. because by 9, it's 100. So. I need to do one of those, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, let me jump into our jazz discussion. Um, you know, as I said in my intro, you are one of the uh, foremost historians of jazz that I personally know, and uh, I learned so much about the art form from you. Start off by telling us about the four pillars of jazz. You know, that that's probably one of the most interesting approaches that we take because everyone goes into the origins of jazz. And if you look at the 1619 Project and you began to realize that the sounds of jazz are called, uh, you know, compilation of the sounds of the people that were uh, stolen from their homeland and where they were deposited, okay? So when you talk about jazz in America, you're talking about the only indigenous art form known to this, to the colonies, to this place. So saying that is to say there were four significant places that nurtured this thing called jazz. New Orleans, Congo Square, Chicago, New York, and Kansas City. Within Kansas City, our progression of that was a very interesting situation because you're talking about pillars. You're talking about a foundational situation that because of the because of the way living was set up, it produced this music. So, you know, and I can speak specifically on various places, you know, the transportation within Chicago, which made that sound, that sound, the transportation ability within New York that made that sound, that sound. And then you talk about New Orleans and the various cultures that are coalesced. But when you talk about Kansas City, you're talking about a people who were literally confined to three square miles. 60, 60,000 people confined to three square miles. Wow. So segregation was very, very compact here. So when you talk about the swing era of jazz, you talk about one place, Local 627, which was the Colored Musicians Union that sits right in the middle of everything. But in Kansas City, everything in the Black community was inches from something else. Okay? If you lived on Vine Street, you were this far away from the next house that was this far away from the next house that was next door to the store that was next door to the church that was across the street from the school. So you see this denseness is what produced swing because there were so many things going on at that time. Let's talk 1917 first and the um, year that Kansas City received its charter from the American Federation of Musicians. Local 627 was the only musicians union, the colored musicians union in this region, okay? Oklahoma, Nebraska, all the places in the region. So if you reported to the, you reported to Local 627, okay, which was segregated. But when you think about that, who belonged to that? Everybody who was black. So who's who in jazz from 1917 until at least 1972? 
Who was that? That's everybody. If you came to the city in Kansas City, you can generally see where anybody who reported to Kansas City to play a gig had to report to 1823 Highland, which is still there. Local 627, the building is still there and a National Historic Landmark, of course. Right. So you're talking these pillars, you're talking about the foundation on which this music was built. And this music was built upon capacity. It was built upon cultures coming together. It was built upon transportation and the ability to either access it or not. Okay. And then it was built upon a lineage system that in every school that you attended, there was a necessity for a required number of music hours. Well, if you were going to have a job and you were a musician in Kansas City, generally you walked out of one door like your house and across the street from the school because you taught music. Okay. Okay. And some of the biggest names in the history, sidemen, so to speak, were like Jay McShann and very were huge teachers in the area. Right. So the pillar system is, is a beautiful situation because they're the most documented. Okay. Okay. They're where you can find the the deepest information that shows you where jazz went over the next century. Right. Okay. Got it. There was something unique going on at the time that the Kansas City jazz scene was in its heyday, and that was prohibition. Mm-hmm. And the um, how shall I say this politely? The mob scene of the of the late uh, uh, 1917 to you know the 1930s. Kansas City holds holds a unique place in that history because Kansas City didn't really honor prohibition. We wasn't poor. Us <laughs> <laughs> was standing in food and soup lines, and please, we were not poor. Boss Tom Kent Pendergast, the city manager at that time. You know, he kept this economic thing going on that made things right. Paramutual betting, you know, liquor stores open all the time, liquor by the drink anywhere you wanted it, walking down the street, naked women on stage, you name it. (laughs) Kansas City was a mob city built on mob money, built on mob money. And and the one percent at that time, the nickels people who built the plaza, all of those rich people who started all the segregated covenants, you know, that black people couldn't live in certain areas and things. That's how Kansas City was run. So we weren't poor. And the mob kept us rich. The mob from Chicago. <laughs> the mob from New York. The mob from New Orleans. And those pillars, okay? Right. If you look back on those pillars, they were not poor. It was only those who didn't participate in the music. And the smartest thing to do for Blacks at that particular time was to let them play the music. So you see all of these wonderful um, art deco movies and, you know, stuff like that in the 20s and the 30s with these all-Black bands playing jazz, you know, and... And the history of jazz is steeped, steeped in the mob history and the 40s 
so-called illegal history, you know, that now everybody's trying to get back to because it was one of the greatest economic strategies ever. Right. Okay, let them eat, let them drink, let them live where they want to. (laughs) 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 And they will party and entertain us for a millennia. Yep, and keep yeah. and keep that racial animosity at a minimum. And they will create and do everything they want to do. Right. Okay. And that that was part of Kansas City and still pretty much is. When when the mob stopped intervening, so to speak, in the last late seventies, you know, and uh liquor by the drink, you know, they bought on the blue laws and everything was shut down and blase blase then Kansas City began this slow decline and began to try to rebrand itself as something that is that it wasn't, right. ever has been. So mm-hmm. when you don't hear about Kansas City anyway, it's because these so-called powers that be don't know the significance of the history that we share with the other states and with this incredible thing called jazz that was gifted you know, as an art form, when you consider this, Michael, when you consider a new art form, I mean, conceive that consciously. There's ballet. There is impressionist art. There is realism. There's Cubanism. There's all kinds of beautiful things in the arts. But they came out of someone's mind, out of someone's, you know, you think about those things. So when you think about jazz, it came out of the worst of the oppressive situation this world has ever seen. 400 years of enslavement. And when you think of what it might have taken for these incredible people to have become musicians and created a whole new system within something as esoteric and something as blatantly out there as music, then you have got to start looking at the gigantic genius of these people. And then to constantly reinvent it, constantly reinvent it. You go through one era in this New Orleans, you go through another one that is Kansas City swing, you go through another one that's bebop, you go through another one that's fusion, you go through another one, you know, you go through these things and these cycles till it must really be a burden (laughs) on those who want to paint black folk as being so reprehensible and so, it must be a tremendous burden to have to have to admit that there would be no jazz had it not been for these people right. celebrating their culture and their rhythms and changed them to a point where they created something that had never been present on the earth. Anita, it is interesting that you said that most folks when they talk about jazz, they talk about the origins of jazz. Mm. And I myself, I'm guilty of that as well. Um, I live in New York City. New York City is one of the jazz uh, capitals as well. And for some reason, I think of New Orleans as the as as the origins of jazz. Um, why do you think that is? That is because there is no definable origins within our culture as black people as 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 part of enslavement we all gathered 
where we were and created something for us. We didn't like, oh, let's go to New Orleans and learn jazz. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. What happened was in New Orleans, because of the Creole, French, African, and things like that, something came about that made their music that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then you're in Kansas City. And it's like all of a sudden, jazz didn't just pop up. We had eras in ours too. That was Ragtime and, you know, the various names, Blind Boone and all those people that came along, you know, around this. So jazz was like simultaneously building, you know, until the travel started, until the Chitlin circuit began, until entertaining ourselves and entertaining like the Astors and the big money people in the United States, you know, it got to be, oh, did you hear those black people? Oh, I want jazz at my big mansion you know, and things like that. Then you get this coalescing of people, okay? But it has never been like, you know, black folk went to New Orleans and bought back jazz, or they went to Kansas City, but it was something that was indigenously going on at the same time that the world was changing. And as transportation systems got more reliable and various things like that, we were able to study and see and then change things for where we were. Because in Kansas City, We were so densely populated that swing became a necessity because you had, if you were going to live as a musician, you had to go from the school to the rent party to the gig at some hotel or something, and you bought the church music, and you bought all those things in with you. James Weldon Johnson in 1918 came to Kansas City and heard a church group uh, do, and it was virtually jazz that we were playing everywhere else, you know, with the undertones of um, the gospel, because Kansas City gospel is, Kansas City jazz is blues-based and gospel-tinged, right? So in this situation that you have, you have something that came out of swing because that's what was happening internally. But it was happening everywhere. It was happening in Philadelphia. It was happening. But because we were so transportation and so economically better than everyone else in the country at that time, we were able to be considered to be, okay, the origins or the four pillars of that. So that yeah. virtually came about. I have a twofold question for you. Okay. Is there a difference between New Orleans jazz, New York City jazz, Kansas City um, jazz? And how has jazz changed through the years? And what I mean by that is, if I listen to other genres of music, if you listen to country from the 50s, country music today is a whole lot different than it was in the 50s. If I, I mean, I'm, I'm from the Caribbean. If I listen to reggae, Mm-hmm. Reggae in the 70s is totally different. If you listen to rap today, rap has evolved. Right. Uh, is, is it the same for jazz? Without question. Without question. Jazz, jazz's evolution is one of the most heavily debated and one of the most heavily studied genres in the world. Okay. I went to one place in, in New, York, New York, went to jazz at Lincoln Center, and was invited to be a speaker at this big thing that they were doing. And they had all these kids, white kids who were studying jazz. And the professor gets up and he starts talking about Kansas City and how Kansas City's evolution came when they bought in the this and they did that. And, you know, and they consciously, I said, no, they didn't. 
And he was like, what do you mean? I said, Kansas City swing, it was entertainment. They didn't consciously sit up and say, oh, 4-4 to the beat. Let's make this happen. And then that didn't happen like that. And the big band sound came up because we had we had dance halls that were like, held 2,000 people on the floor. So you had to be heard. And you couldn't be heard when there was one microphone, you know, so you had to get the best trumpeters could project the sounds. So the sounds of Kansas City didn't come through with some, and he was trying to give it this really, and I won't say that high intellectual was not, is a problem, but he was trying to make it seem as is, you know, Count Basie sat down and wrote all this stuff to project the intellectuality. Nah, he wrote all that stuff so his best daggum people could, could project the sound out so people could dance to it. It was that simple. But when you get to the Coltrane's and the various people, they actually took it down to a mathematic equation. And it's some of the most fascinating stuff because dancing, singing, music, it is mathematics. So you can consider that when you have no music classes and you have no idea about how this incredible music plays out intellectually, then yeah, you got a bunch of daggum people who do a bunch of music that has nothing to do with music. You know, it has to do with the only equation that they can get to right now, and that is the basis of rhythm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have nothing to say about those who are in the hip hop and stuff, because that's the necessity that comes out of being a creative group of people. We needed it because they had taken everything else. So they created the movements and, and, and and the rhythm. You know, rap is rhythm, Rhyme and poetry, rhythm and poetry, rap. So yeah, (laughs) Uh, when you're talking about a whole, the creation, the differences and various things like that, it's really, really hard to get out and say, yeah, it's this, you know, because it's so many things. You know, music, music like any other art form evolves over time. It can't stay static where it ceases to become interesting uh, or it ceases to hold an audience or the musicians don't feel challenged. So they wind up just creating, you know, rote music, which is no fun for anybody uh, to to partake in. So, um, you know. I've sat in on a couple of sessions that you've spoken at and a couple of others. And I always get amazed by the question you got at the Lincoln Center about trying to put jazz in a box and say, well, New Orleans, they did this and Kansas City, they did this because it's actually, as you just alluded to, an expression of their circumstances. And those circumstances change all the time. Um, And when those circumstances change for Charlie Parker, who's turning 100 years old this year, you know, Jay McShann, he played in a big band from his first gig was in a big band. When I wrote for the BBC and I wrote for um, a local paper here and talked to his first wife, that was his first gig. He was 16 years old in a big band. Right. But he learned that sound here in Kansas City. But when he went to New York, think of the dynamics that changed. You had big brownstones. You had, you know, various aspects of living and transportation that were not in Kansas City. So the small club and the small room 
And to be able to take that music like he and Dizzy and all those incredible people did in that brownstone picture in 1956, you know, that was a whole different antenna. Right. So the creation of a bebop came because of the different location, but he still bought that heavy blues and he still bought that gospel trend, him and Coltrane and Dizzy and all these incredible people and the, the, the architects of bebop, you know, took all of that from big band and just kind of like bought it into a smaller space. Which makes sense. I mean, because yeah. most of the clubs in New York City are small compared to Kansas yeah. City. Um, did did Lindy dancing come out of the swing era? You better know it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and because, you know, every time you see a movie of the era, you always see the dancers. Uh, of all the uh, uh, elements that were created out of jazz as far as something other than the music, Lindy dancing is by far the most yeah, recognizable. Everybody does it. I can, I'm sitting here going through my head and I'm looking and all of these movies where the girls are being tossed in the air and over the guy's back and all yeah. this stuff. I mean, it was yep. it was fantastic. Listen to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh yeah, boy! And you know, you look at those people and the tremendous energy, the tremendous thought about dancing to jazz. That's what somebody told me one time. I was just so upset. You know, well, jazz is a problem because you can't dance to it. I said, you can't dance to Kenny G. That's right. <laughs> but, if he, but if you can't dance to Count Basie and Duke Ellington, Something and that's a fool, okay, yep. then you have no rhythm whatsoever. Yeah. But you said it nice. You said it nice. <laughs> I agree with you. But that's not jazz. That's right. Okay. That's a construct <laughs> that was made so you can get from one floor to the next without being totally bored. Okay. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. So, you know, you have these elements that must be present. And the Lindy Hop, my God, we were trying to tell you about two-stepping mm-hmm. in Kansas City mm-hmm. and why two-stepping in Kansas City is different from stepping in oh. Chicago, different from stepping in, in, in New York, in the Black community, different from the hand dance or the bop in New York, because our two-stepping is a derivative of the Lindy Hop. Right. Because once the Blue Laws came in, they shut down the big dance halls, we had to take it to a closer quarters. Okay? So you had basement parties and backyard parties and things where this music was still being played, but now it was like the 60s. Okay? And you had Wes Montgomery and the various people that were playing this danceable jazz. But, you know, it has slowed the expansion down. So Kansas City, I can I can step anywhere else in the country, but you can't come to Kansas City and do the Kansas City two step because it's different. And I, <laughs> so many times, I'm, I'm the stepper. I'm like, no, no, no. y'all just step. Y'all got to keep up with each other. In Kansas City, there's twists and turns and movements that if you do not know how to do it, you cannot step. Right, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, and it's a derivative of the Lindy Hop. You know, we did a whole documentary on it. 
Yeah, I remember watching that documentary. As a matter of fact, you showed it to me. Uh, the uh, going back, you touched on this about the Mutual Musicians Foundation on Highland Avenue. I know the building still exists. Do you still do jam sessions up there on Friday and Saturday night? Not since COVID. <laughs> well, not uh, since COVID. Yeah, the, those, uh, Dave, I was fortunate. Like I said, I, I've spoken at the Mutual Musicians Foundation more times than I can remember. And every Friday and Saturday night, they had jam sessions. Musicians just showed up, not just the local Kansas City musicians. They had musicians from around the world. We're actually going to touch on in, in a few minutes when we make our pivot uh, to the Europeans contributing to jazz. We had, there were some Europeans who just walked in there. They had their trumpets, their you know, bass guitars or whatever, and they just jumped right in and they didn't miss a beat. Matter of fact, some of them actually outperformed some of the local Kansas City musicians oh, who did. Those guys... Good. And they were not ready for it. They, those guys were really, really good. We're, we're going to make that pivot in just a minute. I just okay. want to uh, polish off the Kansas City piece of this really fast. Um, we know the uh, Mutual Musicians Foundation building is a National Historic Landmark. Uh, Kansas City also has a museum uh, that is different than if you uh, the Mutual Musicians Foundation. By the way, the Mutual Musicians Foundation is a two-story building. There is some absolutely wonderful artwork on that bottom floor, original paintings of the era with all kinds of uh, jazz musicians and and clubs and everything and it it's that it it by itself is worth just going to the musician even yet if you have to just spend an hour walking around looking at those imagery that they're they're wonderful Kansas City let's talk about some of the famous people from Kansas City. You'd mentioned Charlie Parker, but there's somebody, uh, a couple others, you mentioned Jamie Shan, but there's a couple others that have worldwide recognition as well. Uh, Mary Lou Williams, the greatest female uh, piano players who worked with um, just about everybody in the business who wrote music for Count Basie. Uh, Julia Lee, that from the 1920s to the 1980s, you know, was a prolific composer and pianist in her brother's band, the Georgie Lee Band. And, um, oh my God, <laughs> Ben Kennard wrote Little Red Top and right. various things. There's all kinds. And Ben Webster, I believe, is from Kansas City. Oh, Ben Webster. Of course. How can I forget Ben? Ben was considered the the rival of Charlie Parker. Right. Okay. He was considered in many, many um, writings and things in Kansas City to rival Charlie Parker. And it was because of Charlie Parker's immense talent, of course, his move to New York, his subsequent life there and death there at so young an age. But Ben, Ben Webster moved to Copenhagen in the late 60s. Okay, and when he got over there, he decided I'm not ever going back. And he didn't. And his saxophone and his sound is as big in Europe as Charlie Parker. As a matter of fact, if you go to Spotify and all these various things and you look up uh, Kansas City Jazz, you'll find that Ben Webster in Europe, Mexico, France, and Japan are played more than Charlie Parker. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you talk about famous people from Kansas City. In terms of, of jazz overall, I remember growing up as a kid and, and in a different genre. Um, it was a song called um, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. I was, oh. a very, I, I was a very young person, didn't understand the meaning of that. And I read with Josephine Baker 
Um, maybe it's in St. Louis, St. Louis that she did it. Do you say St. Louis or St. Louis? Doesn't matter. I say St. Louis. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> right, right. And she showed her bosom. Um, um, it, it, as it relates to jazz and the message and and the rebellion, was that? Do you know if that was part of the women's movement back then? Well, the unofficial women's movement back then. No. You think that was a protest message in her? Josephine Baker was the prolific sister who didn't give a damn about much but what she wanted to do. And even within the so-called suffragette movement, which she lived in, it had nothing to do with her. And if you do any re- and you understand anything about this sister, this sister wanted to get away from the racism of this country. But she bought everything that she was, Black, yeah, because she was considered dark-skinned for some strange reason. Yeah. She bought everything that she was to France, okay, to, and that's what they wanted. They wanted the Black experience. So she gave them just that, bare-breasted and banana, and banana-skinned all along. She, you know, she was the best play-to-the-audience person I've ever seen, I've ever studied about, okay? But she still had such a sense of community, such a sense of wanting to just be human, you know what I mean? That, you know, she skirted over everything that a white woman would be scared to do. Okay, just scared to do. Because she just wasn't bound by anything when she left this country. She wasn't bound by her skin color. She wasn't bound by being poor anymore. She wasn't bound by being female. She was considered to be the sexiest, greatest, most exotic And that's what most people want to own. So she wasn't really a feminist. She was just Josephine. Right. And everybody followed her because of that, because of her, you know, audacity to just be herself. Yeah. And I just think, you know, and I, 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 if I could have been a Josephine Baker, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's still not too late. My, but yeah, well, <laughs> skirt. yeah, I'm going to go out in banana skirt. <laughs> but I can barely stand on my left foot. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, you, you've hit on something, and I, and I think it, it, it bears a, a, a little exposition, if you will. One of the things that a lot of Black musicians did back then, even up and through the 1980s, was they went to Europe, and a lot of them stayed and never came back other than to come performing and go back. And one of the reasons that they did it, and I've heard this said throughout history, and as a child who lived in Europe for three years when I was a little boy, they didn't have to think about being black. Right. They never had to think about it. All they had to do was just be. Right. Talk about James Baldwin. Yeah, mm-hmm. James Baldwin did it. Um, I mean, I, there, there was a couple R&B singers from the 80s whose name escaped me. One of them moved to London, and the other one moved to Europe. I mean, Tina Turner, I believe, still lives in Europe to this day. Is this, well, she gave up her citizenship <laughs> yep. and said, screw it, I'm, I'm from Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Sweden. <laughs> I'm from Sweden. Um, and, and, and so, like, you, you know, when I was in Spain, and Babe's heard me say this, thousand times when I was a little boy I got there when I was five and I was a little bit too young to appreciate what was going on in America with the civil rights movement at the time but I never ever ever once thought of myself as having to worry about my skin color and neither did my parents I got lost in Madrid I was a six-year-old little boy running around the streets of Madrid because my father opted to live in the city not on the military base and 
the Spaniards never once said anything about the color of my skin or what I look like or anything. What are you doing here? None of that stuff. And a lot of times during siesta, which is a very real thing in Madrid, I would get lost. I would find some Spaniard on a street corner and say, I live at such and such an address. They'd point me home. Six years old. I don't, to this day, I can't figure out what the hell my mother did letting a six-year-old boy walk the streets of Madrid by himself. But she did. Come back for dinner. (laughs) Sometimes I wouldn't even do that. And she would send our, we had a maid back then. And sometimes she would send the maid to come hunt me down, which was always hard to do. Then they grounded me for a week and I go right back out and do what the hell I did before. Um, So I'm going to make a pivot because you actually brought this up. You have a very good relationship with the jazz music scene in Copenhagen. Yes. Tell, and there's a big link to Kansas City in Copenhagen. And I'm not going to tell the story because I already know it, but I'm going to let you tell the story. But first of all, tell us about the jazz scene, not just in Europe, but specifically in Denmark, because you've been there. I wasn't prepared for the deep reverence for who I was and where I came from. It was like I was Dorothy and I had just landed in Oz and everybody wanted to know, oh, and I I was being greeted like, oh, she is from Kansas City. Oh, tell us about Kansas City. Like, you know, this was some mythical place in history. So I wasn't prepared for the reverence because here in Kansas City, I always get that. Well, you know, it's Kansas City. Oh, that's that jazz thing. I need to keep pushing. But you get to Copenhagen, to Denmark, and my host, Henrik, was the head of the, was the, was the president of the Ben Webster Foundation. That was daggum endorsed by the queen of Denmark, for God's sake. Okay. So I'm at his house. He's, I'm staying at his apartment. He's lived there 56 years. And I'm seeing all these incredible pictures of everybody who's anybody. Eartha Kitt, Ringo Starr, uh, the Beatles, and who have come to this guy's house. Because his wife was black and a singer from Mississippi. And there he was with a biracial child, you know her, Mikala. Okay? <laughs> and they're living in this place that jazz... And it's like you wake up in the morning and you hear these melodic sounds of jazz. And these are people who have given him their their tape recordings on, real tape player, you know? And there's walls and walls and walls of music and pictures. And I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for the reverence. And then we go out and he takes me to a nightclub. Oh, Anita, it's so important that you go. And I get there and there's a party for me. (laughs) <laughs> at this place. We would like to introduce you to Anita Dixon from Kansas City. Then it's like, oh my God, yay. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> and they proceed to do all Kansas City swing music for me. Anita, we will have do and do for you now 627 Skunk. Ah, oh, Anita, we are now doing, you know, and it was like this big band had been hired for the special guest from the United States who was me. Yeah. Come on. In Kansas City, I got to beg people to give these people 50 bucks a person that can play this music. So nobody wants to play the music. But there, oh my God, you're singled out if you know Kansas City music. You're singled out as a player. You know what I'm saying? So it was like... 
I wasn't prepared for the reverence. I wasn't prepared for the historic preservation that they had gone through. When people just throw stuff out the window here, there was, there was music, there was W.C. Handy and Duke Ellington and, and Ben Webster and Trump. They had these people on tape because they had five jazz radio stations in Denmark. So you can't, I can't keep one going in Kansas City. Why? The Russians stole it. So, you know, <laughs> you have to deal in Europe. You have to be an international person, an international persona, if you're going to make something happen for your musicians here in Kansas City and try to get that high reverence for them because they don't have it in the United States. Yeah. They don't have it. Considering the origins of jazz, why do you think it has taken off and doing so well in Europe, in Copenhagen specifically? Because of their lack of understanding of the stupidity of racism. <laughs> okay, they, they, they just didn't get that part. Okay, they helped in the enslavement, but they withdrew themselves almost half a century before uh, it was released in the colonies in the United States. Uh, their, their, their respect for culture and those things goes beyond just their respect for the music. They have respect for their architecture, which in Copenhagen, you know, you can see buildings that were built in the 1400s, mm. you know? They, have, they didn't tear them down to put up mini malls like Kansas City. Like the United States. <laughs> you know, they have a respect for the air that they breathe. So there's not a lot of cars. They kept a bicycle culture. Okay, they kept it. It was a preservation move. Mm-hmm. All right. They kept the ability to keep the best in culture because schooling is free. And jazz is taught in schools. I, I read. Yeah. So they have a respect for culture and creativity like we do not. You know, we've gotten into the Donald Trump way of thinking. And if it's not glitzy and glamorous and got a little stink on it, but that's okay. You know, uh, we don't have any respect for that. We don't even fund the arts that much in this country anymore. No. Do you know that in Hanover, Germany, they sunk 50 and I was 50 billion dollars into preserving their cultural history and places because of COVID-19? I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. They're like, hey, we invested way too much to get away from that Nazi stupid crap that seems to be picking up in America. You know, and in order to hold on to those things and have the rest of the world respect us, we're going to fund our musicians, our artists, our dancers, our singers, our facilities, our various things that we've sunk a lot into. Fifty billion. I'm talking just something that just happened like four months ago. And and here we can't even get a stimulus check passed to take care of starving Americans. Thank you. Let alone starving musicians. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's another whole show, by the way. Starving (laughs) musicians. I'm sitting in right now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I've been blessed enough to be a traveler. (laughs) 
So when I get out here, I'm like a fish out of water showing us. Like, oh my God, you people are so stupid. And it's hard not to say it just like that. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to let that slide only because I could take <laughs> off for two hours having this discussion. Remember, I did minor in political science. Um, <laughs> we could go at this all day. Yeah, we, really- we could. Talk about the quality of the musicians in Copenhagen, because I remember when I was at the Mutual Musicians Foundation with you and those gentlemen walked in and joined the band that was already on stage playing, they not only was it a seamless transition, they dominated. And I hate to say this, but America, y'all need to wake up. These guys were good. I told these cats here in Kansas City when we got back from Denmark, I said, look, you guys are just joking. You know your music, you think you all that stuff, but these guys eat, drink, and breathe us. Okay? And they are the jazz cats. You know, you saw them, you know, and the Danes are gorgeous people anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah they, they are. <laughs> something, you know, blonde Norsemen type guys and unplugged their stuff and ate their lunches. And all I could do was work, look at these cats in their Birkenstocks and purple <laughs> hair and I'm like, hey, I told you guys. And they, they couldn't do anything but just go, are you serious? dedication but there was something else that makes them that way money (laughs) money they they are part of the international brotherhood of musicians they have a union you cannot play the music on a continuous basis in Denmark and not be a part of the international brotherhood of musicians and get paid for rehearsals and get paid for where you live and get paid for your work you cannot So they are head and above tails musicians because it's their profession. It's what they do to make money. And the passion is so high. How do you mix the two of high passion and money? And they walked in here and it was like being on a playground where they beat you up, take your lunch money, (laughs) and eat the lunch in front of you. That's what went down. <laughs> and I'm sitting over in the corner going, oh, I told you first, at least take off the Birkenstocks, didn't I? Yep. I was so stunned at their, it, it wasn't their performance that stunned me because I already knew. It was the reaction of the crowd. At first, these people were sitting on their hands, Dave, and they didn't know what to make of these Nordic looking six foot four inch strapping white guys with their uh, instruments in their hand. It took them about 30 seconds to realize they were watching something special. Yeah. They really <laughs> and um, I mean, the audience, the, the, audi- the beauty, the thing I liked about going to those mutual musician uh, uh, events, uh, which happen every Friday and Saturday night, and it didn't start to what, 11, 10 or 11 o'clock at night? Not till one in the morning. And to, yeah. Oh, yeah. One, yeah. No wonder I didn't get any sleep when I visited you. Anyway, um, <laughs> the audience wasn't just black, Dave. Even without uh-huh. the even without the guys from Copenhagen, there was a cross section of uh, Asian Americans. Actually, there was a cross section of Asians one time because somebody had come from Japan, I believe, Anita. It was it was Japan on one side, right. and Iranians on the other side. Right. Do you remember that? Yep, and, I remember and, that. And the Iranians were woo woo woo. 
Woo, woo, woo. And the Japan Japanese were over there like, what's wrong with those guys? <laughs> and we sat there right in the middle going, look at this dynamic. Yep. Look at this historic international dynamic. This is how people respond from this country. And this is how people respond from this country. Right. And we're all in the same room. Amazing. Yep. It, it, was, it was, it, you know, music brought everybody together from it all did. these different cultures who you would have never thought because the, uh, the um, foundation is in the middle of the black community in Kansas City. You wouldn't have thought to go there. Most folks run away from that if they're Americans, but these guys didn't care. They went right into it. Couldn't wait to get there. Yeah, couldn't. Yeah, exactly. Heard all about it. Local 627 was like this pilgrimage to Oz, I'm telling you. Right. When I got there, said, do you know I've waited all my life to get here? And, and somebody looked at him like, to get here? To get here? Do you know where you are? And he's questioning this American like, how lucky are you? Yep. And the American didn't know he was lucky. Had no clue. Okay. That, that's what just like my blood pressure just, I almost cursed somebody out that night because oh, they yeah. didn't oh, yeah. know what they were watching. Exactly. They had, they had no clue. Um, before I pivot to the one other project that I know you're involved in with UNESCO, uh, I saw a picture of you someplace there. Ben Webster is actually buried in Copenhagen. Am I correct? Right. Yeah, you, you were taking a picture of him. And I, I was looking online yesterday, some of the YouTube video, because I know they just can't canceled the Summer Copenhagen Jazz Festival because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was I was struck. I, I must have watched a half a dozen videos, and I sent a couple of them to Dave. And there were so many Americans, white Americans, black Americans, who had left the United States, moved to Copenhagen because they could actually pursue their craft of jazz. And they said, they're not coming back to the United States. Had I not been, and I'll tell you, I was there seven or eight days. And, you know, it was when Ferguson was happening, right? And uh, they had killed Michael Brown. It was Ferguson. And when I got there, and I was in a group, and they were trying to discuss with me, and I told them I didn't want to discuss Ferguson. And one of the gentlemen came up to me. He said, hands up, don't shoot, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot. I thought, oh, God, this is all they know about us. And I was offered asylum for me and my family. Wow. If you do not want to live in that chaos that we see from over here, then get your family and we will get you asylum in Denmark because you're a very valuable person and you could teach us a lot of things. And we could convince our government that we need to take care of you and your family because you would bring us such a cultural significance. Now, I'm talking to the people who are running the big jazz festivals over in Copenhagen. I'm talking to one of the representatives from the Queen who had come down to see Kansas City and meet me. And it was like, oh, no, we could get that done. So can you imagine my mindset at that point? I was actually torn. I was actually torn. That's a powerful story. Had it not been for my grandchildren and Lynn's business, I might have done it. I might have gone. I might have done it. You can t- you can tell Dave and I are speechless. Yeah, um, <laughs> your your knowledge of the history of jazz is impeccable. I mean, it's flawless. You just mentioned that you went to Copenhagen. You're in demand. Folks are folks are folks are literally treating you like a queen. My question is, what was the impetus behind you um, becoming a jazz historian? 
And have you ever had an interest to play or do you play any jazz mm. in instruments at all? No, I'm not a musician. <laughs> I'm not anything like that. The, the impetus, I have to say, I had to be born with it. I just don't know anything else. You know what I mean? You, you're put into a situation when you're a kid and you go to the park. You're a little black kid. You're in a segregated neighborhood. But you go to the park and there's a band in the park because it's hot outside, so everybody slept in the park, right? So you go to the park and you hear this band and you're dancing. And come to find out, yeah, you know, it was Cal Basie or Lou Donaldson or big names in there. So my mama moved us away in the 1960s to Colorado. I moved back in 1980 because I was born here. And she boohooed. I mean, she actually boohooed. Like, why are you moving back there? It's the most racist. And if I could explain it, it can only be that the music drew me. That's, I can't think of anything else. Because who would want to stay in such a racist, such a backbiting situation like my mother drew us out of and I ran back to? And it was because of the spirits of it. And the people that I met, I met Lou Donaldson and was able to tell him the story that my mom and my dad had about the fight between him and Charlie Parker. My mom said Lou Donaldson was better than Charlie Parker. My dad told my mom she was crazy. <laughs> I remember those things. And I remember hearing this melodic music out of everywhere that I walked and everywhere that I went as a child. So I come back to Kansas City and I find my way back to Local 627 and it's in shambles. Wow. It's, it's a mess. Everybody was dying. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the greats began to die. And I watched this thing happening from my good friend, Eddie Baker, who I met, who was a musician who lived in Canada. And he started something called the International Jazz Hall of Fame. And at 26 years old, I was his gopher. I was the person that ran around and did the, you know, I just, and then all of a sudden I'm meeting everybody. <laughs> I told you this, uh, Dizzy Gillespie in 1988, he's in town. And I'm the gopher and I run up, you know, and I, yeah, I was a pretty good looking kid. And I felt this huge pinch on my rear and I'm like, ah! Dizzy Gillespie has pinched me on my butt. <laughs> <laughs> it left a bruise. He would be in gym today. I wasn't gonna put him there. You know, I got I got to tie Lionel Hampton's shoes and help him get on stage. I got to have somebody I got a chance to have, you know. Ray Charles, I was talking to him constantly because he was a friend of Eddie's and we were at this thing and Ray Charles asked me to come over and he did me like this. And then he put his hands on mine. He said, ooh, and I'll never forget. He said, this girl got some soup coolers. <laughs> wow. I'm hanging out with Joe Williams and Nancy Wilson. We're in this club and in this hotel, after everybody gets off, and it's Nancy Wilson and Joe Wilson and Joe Williams and you know Chaka Khan, all these people who had come to this event for the International Jazz Hall of Fame, and we're all in there sitting, and I'm looking around, and some stooge from the hotel goes, "Well, we're gonna have to shut this down." <laughs> yeah, because we've got a noise ordinance. Blah blah. 
And I'm looking at this fool. And so the bartender behind the thing, he said, I am not going up to the greatest of the greats and tell them to get out of here because it's time. You go do it. You go over there to Nancy Wilson and tell her she can't have another drink. You go over there to Joe Williams and tell him the same. Tell Ray Charles he can't have another camel, okay? (laughs) Go ahead. And I'm looking at this dude. I said, yeah, go ahead. Try it. And we were there to three and four o'clock in the morning, like they always do, because they're musicians. They bought in a piano. They bought in their music. And we sat there in in this club, in this hotel, and the greatest of the greats of uh, the County Brothers, and oh my God, Art Blakey, and they were all there. Yeah. And I sat there in a total trance, and I could not separate myself from not seeing that be a part of the history and heritage of the young black kids who deserve to know because they'd never meet these people. And I had, Mm. so it was kind of like my responsibility. And when I look back on things, I realized how much they suffered to just be themselves. Yeah. So it became my thing. David, it became my thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for the music. I'm fighting for the respect right. of this because they're gone. Yep. They're gone. Is jazz a dying industry or is there an appetite? Do you see an appetite for young folks to be part of jazz? Because you, you, you mentioned just now that all the greats are dying off. That's, that's what prompted me to, to follow up on this question. Uh, all the greats of that era are dying. Okay. There are kids, and I mean kids, who don't want to do anything else. And they're from all over the world. And in Kansas City, thank God for having these programs and these kids who were raised in the church and that music because it is not only not dying it is becoming the number one area of study in the music era next to classical if anything's dying it's classical Mm -hmm. not jazz because there's something inherent in, in the rhythm of the centuries that the 1619 project brought about that awakened the history and the heritage of these things again. So now that we're coming up on the hundred years of this and the hundred year of that, which is a long time in America, but nothing to the rest of the world, you know, we're finally getting a resurgence of the respect. And if, we do not remain in the circle. If we do not remain is that that we would have lost it all because these people here in Kansas City just don't respect their black image. And regardless as to what's going on, no matter how they market this some biscuit eater, we in the rest of the world sees us as black. And they don't disrespect us and they don't discount us for it. So there's this constant movement of uh, having to remind folk that our international image is black yep. <laughs> because of this music. Just Get over it. Get used to it. Yep. You are you know? correct. Well, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this show uh, and specifically with you was 
we wanted to introduce people to the jazz scene and visiting Kansas City. But we also, as a travel program, there's links to the rest of the world that I don't think Americans understand. And to be able to go to a place like Copenhagen and go to all the different uh, jazz clubs and to see some of the museums and the appreciation for the art form, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't tell every person who will ever listen to this podcast, whether now or 10 years from now, if you don't take yourself to Europe and especially to Denmark and some places like that that really appreciate this art form, you are missing out on a wonderful travel experience. So I just wanted to drop that in there. Uh, In the moments that we have left, I need you to tell us about, first of all, what is UNESCO and what is your relationship with UNESCO? Because it's extremely germane to this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, has a something called UNESCO World Heritage and UNESCO Creative Cities. And um, in October of 2017, uh, I wrote and applied for Kansas City to become a creative city of music under UNESCO, which is 56 cities in, okay, there's 280 creative cities, and it has seven pillars. It has uh, music, media arts, crafts and folk arts, music, you know, some, no, there's seven, right? There's seven, yeah, there's seven, there's seven. we know. There's seven. But creative music, there's 56 countries that are considered to be, or cities that are considered to be uh, creative cities of music because of their heritage. Well, I wrote for Kansas City, in 2017 and received the only creative city of music under the UN in the United States. And that's in Kansas city. That's the only one. The only one. (laughs) My God. I know. Right. (laughs) Everybody else is asleep at the switch. Of an application. (laughs) Okay. You talk about an application that was so lengthy and crazy. There's a whole bunch of lazy people in big positions who didn't want to do nothing. And one, and some of them are in Kansas city. So when they found out that I had written this thing free of charge and want it, then it was like, oh my God, what do we do with her now? But then I went another step and wrote the American Music Apprenticeship Program. The first time in the department of history of the Department of Labor where musicians are recognized as a profession. It was recognized as an occupation once before, but not a principal, apprenticeable. Right. And it took me three years to convince the Department of Labor that it needed an apprenticeship in order to survive. And we got it. So I got two American first that nobody said nothing that black girl did, right? I want to do the first of something in American history, and I did. Well, <laughs> Well, I'm going to say to you right now, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, be in Kansas, I'll be in Kansas City for the party soon. Um, yeah, I know where you, you forget, I know where you and Lynn live, so I'll find you. <laughs> <laughs> and my steak, yep. Um, so I don't know any other way to say this, but congratulations, Dave is correct. Thank Your you. knowledge of this art form is uh, unsurpassed. 
And I want to have you back on at some point because I want to have some more discussion about the global influence of jazz. I mean, I know we touched on it when we mentioned Copenhagen. I specifically mentioned Copenhagen because I know you have that relationship. And I I still remember the phone call you had me participate in with the head of art and culture and music in Copenhagen several years ago when we were planning a 100th year anniversary. So, um, but jazz is so ubiquitous and uh, I, I think it's important that we actually tell this story. It is something that is quintessentially American that we've exported to the rest of the world and they've done a better job at preserving it than oh, us. Oh, absolutely, they have. Anita, before before I let you go, uh, do you have a, a, a website where people could reach out to you to either book you as a speaker or to have a discussion with you post COVID, of course, uh, <laughs> or to just you know hire your hire your skill sets? Uh, it's your Absolutely. time. Go to com. S A G E Worldview dot com, and you'll find everything about me my projects, what I've done, demonstrates. It kind of like gives a general overview of who I am and what I've done. Gotcha. Well, again, I want to thank you. She is Anita Dixon, uh, my dear friend. And like I said at the opening, probably the foremost historian on jazz that I have ever met and probably in the top one or two in the entire world on this subject matter. Uh, So, Anita, again, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime, dude. Nice meeting you, David. (laughs) 